Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to another quarantine edition of Revolution Recap. I'm Sean Donahue, joined again today by Greg Johnstone. Uh, Greg, how you doing? Uh, very well. Staying safe. Um, not a lot going on on my end, but, uh, you know, it's great. Just more time to do podcasting, right? <laughs> well, and it sounds like the, the German League may or may not be coming back soon, but people keep getting testing positive for coronavirus over there. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But that would be a welcome relief to get some top-level soccer back on TV. Um, but anyways, it is good to have time to podcast. Excited today um, to have Shari Joseph on the podcast. Um, there's been a lot of talk over the you know, the past several months about you know best Revolution 11s, Mount Rushmores, and um, at least for me, when it comes time to put together a Revolution Mount Rushmore or a Revolution Best 11, uh, the first name on that list is always Shari Joseph. Um, so I'm very excited that we were able to get him to come on the podcast and do an interview with him. Uh, unfortunately, the audio quality wasn't always the best. Um, I know he's been having some some cell phone signal issues at his uh, at his house. So um, there were some of the questions that we you know might have to cut a little bit and you know might not be the easiest to understand. But I think there was a lot of good stuff in there. So I'm um, excited to have Shari Joseph who can play that interview for you now. Hi, Shari. Thank you for joining us today. First, kind of a question of clarification. Two years ago, you signed a two-year contract as the head coach of Grenada. However, I have not seen anything, any announcements about you signing an extension or a new contract. So just for clarification, are you still the head coach of Grenada? No, I'm longer the head coach of Grenada. Uh, did left my contract, and they were just delaying, waiting, and still trying to figure out what they wanted to propose to me. And at that point, time, at that point I didn't want to wait at all. It came to a point where they take me seriously enough, and it's an island. They take me, you know, so I can't have four. I can't have it till four days when my contract ended, and I send them a and I'm and I'm going to continue my life there. That that comes as a bit of a surprise, considering your success uh, in 2019. I think I I just read that you were 10 games unbeaten uh, to end 2019. You also won your group in Nations League, and you've qualified for the Gold Cup for the first time since 2011. Did you want to remain Grenada head coach? Yeah, I, I definitely to continue that job. I thought not my, not just myself, but the staff included. I did a perfect job in qualifying for the Gold Cup in the 2021 Gold Cup. And the unbeaten streak was 10, 10 matches on beaten streak to be on a roll. We started to bond with the players and we really started to get to all the players and we were doing well as a team. And it came to a point where they didn't think, I, I, they didn't give me enough respect or they didn't show their appreciation for what myself and the staff had accomplished. And it was just more of a politics thing in Grenada. I definitely wanted to go back, even when I was in America. When I came to visit, for like two weeks, I came to see the revolution practice right before the COVID-19 crisis started. I went there and I watched them practice. I got to meet Bruce and Kurt and Scales and all these guys on the staff. And I talked to them about coming back to work with the revolution. And they were they were all about it. And I told them that I still wanted to continue to work with Grenada. I still wanted to be the head coach of Grenada. And they were like supportive of that decision. It was like, yeah, we can make it happen. You can work in Grenada and continue to work with the Revolution Academy and work away from there. So it was things that I wanted to happen that Grenada didn't see fit to give me the opportunity and they didn't show me enough respect and they didn't offer me what I think I was worth at that point in time. Sorry to hear that. And as I say, it seems like you had a very successful tenure. Uh, what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned from your time as head coach there? You know, a whole laundry list of lessons that I learned there. But the biggest thing is the relationship you have between players. You have, to have them. you have to get a certain belief in You have to make sure they understand, but make sure you get that belief in them that they can go out there and perform in each and every game. And that was the biggest thing for me, one of the biggest things for me going in there, having guys who would be working a nine-to-five job and then coming in the afternoon to practice with tired legs, with tired body, and tired mind. And that was one that I had to really try to install in them. Like, no matter what happened throughout the day, you get the opportunity to do what you love. So just work hard and make sure they understand the belief factor is a huge part of winning soccer games. And I'm I'm curious too, 
you know, CONCACAF has changed a lot in the two years uh, while you're a head coach down there in Grenada. What are your thoughts on the new World Cup qualifying structure uh, and its impact on countries like Grenada? I love it. There's a better, there's a better opportunity for realistic opportunity for us to get to the World Cup. And the format they have installed and in place and have in place now, I think with islands like small islands like Grenada, we, we really believe that we have a chance that we can make it to the World Cup. You win a two games and you win a two games here and there and you get to the Gold Cup, you never know what happened. It's all about the opponents you face and the way you play in them. But uh, I love the format they have installed. Similarly, you coached Grenada in the first ever Nations League. What is the impact of the Nations League for smaller countries in CONCACAF like Grenada? I think it's huge. Uh, echo what I was just saying, it's huge. We have a sense of belief now we can make it to... We can make it to the World Cup, like we can make it to the World Cup. If you want to go, even play in Finland. Yeah, the most important thing as a soccer player and as an athlete, you want to play with those games. It comes competition, and the more games you get, the more players you can see, the more players you can see, the more you can instill your philosophy into them, and the more you can train, the more you can play. So I love the new format. I love what they're doing with it, and I hope it can continue to grow and continue to get the best out of the small islands in particular. But for me, it's just trying to... For me, personally, I just think we need more... We need more competition. Yeah, we, need more compet- we need more games in guys. A little bit has done a lot that aspect of it. I hope they can continue to find more competitions and more games for small islands. As I mentioned, it'll be your Grenada's first cup since 2021. What are your expectations for the team? Do you have kind of some high hopes that they're going to go into the Gold Cup and make some noise? Yeah, I'm wishing them well. I hope do great things. And we do have players that are very talented and players that know sort of the game. They just feel like they have the right general and the games. I think we being, uh, I had to bring in a lot of players in England and that are playing in the lower division in England. But those guys came in with the right mentality. They came in with a professional mentality because of who they are in their life. But in Grenada, these guys were they're not professional at all. But when they practice, they showed up and they work hard and they give their they give their all to, to the team, to the to the island each and every day. So things I love about being home and having to work with a lot of local guys on a daily basis. But those games, those guys who came to practice and work extremely hard and to develop a relationship with a lot of them. And, and hopefully, I can see a lot of local and players mixing and do well in the Gold Cup for Grenada. So you mentioned earlier that you had an opportunity with the Revolution Academy. Could you talk a bit about that and what the kind of the next steps are in your coaching career? Yeah. Uh, in February, I came up there. I, I spent like nine days in the first team practice, pretty much really watching them. How they, how Bruce and his staff went about things, and that really opened up my eye to another level of coaching aspect of what I wanted to be. And the awful, awful available to me to work with that academy, which I really want to do for you now. It just hasn't gone my way. And we talked, uh, me and Skills, we talked, me and Kurt and Alfred, we talked to GM, talked about me coming back and work. And it was pretty much for that done deal. Once I went back to Grenada and tell them this is what I wanted to do. And before the COVID-19 crisis happened, I was literally ready to start working with the academy and start getting in there. But it's a great opportunity, I think, for me. I understand kids. I work with kids on a daily basis here and there for the last couple of years. I want to influence one of the younger generation of making great great soccer players and great superstar one day. So hopefully, when we get an idea of when we go when we go back to work in terms of MLS and stuff like that, I can definitely start back with the academy and start working with all these guys again and get an opportunity to grow and learn as a coach. What do you do as a coach during a, a time like this when you have players that you know can't really train or even kick a soccer ball unless they happen to have a you know a yard to do it in? Is there any advice that you can give you know young guys trying to still train and come up at this time? Yeah, for me, I have that I can train in, so I've been one of the lucky ones. I've been able to still train kids, young kids that like under fourteen, under fifteen, nothing older than that right now, just because of the mandatory reason. But for me, I'm fortunate to have a yard, so I've been able to train do a lot of one-on-one sessions. And for me, it's important that kids continue to develop, continue to just touch a soccer ball, whether it's to go outside and just juggle, 
a passing ball against the wall, working your first touch and your pass in, or just set up two goals and dribble. Those little things will help you in the long run, or do speed training, work on your fitness, things like that. You just have to continue to push yourself and motivate yourself. You know, well, it's in a terrible place right now, but as an athlete, you have to find ways to motivate yourself and get out there and do things like that that can help you to be a better individual, a better soccer player at the end of the day, or a better athlete. It, when the when the revolution were looking for assistant coaches for Bruce Arena, I remember one of your one of your teammates, Darius Barnes, tweeted out an endorsement for you. Is that something that you're interested in the future of you know coming to be an assistant coach for the Revolution or another MLS team at some point? Yeah, uh, definitely. I'm uh, Darius through that. Uh, shout out to Darius. He's a good kid. I'm good to see he's working with MLS now. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to touch about touch a little bit on. MLS has provided a lot of jobs for former players and. I love the way we have incorporated all the players who have helped them grow and have them get to where they are. But for me, yeah, I would love the opportunity to continue to become a great coach one day. And for me, there's no better coach. There's no better coach in U.S. soccer history than Bruce Arena. So him being at the Revolution is only a plus for me as a coach and only a plus for his England Mass friends. And once I heard he was here, I reached out to him and I wanted the opportunity to just rub that with him and how I can pick his brain and see what I can learn from him. And he had some staff with Richie Williams and Dave Vanderbilt who have developed a little relationship with and those guys are such great soccer genius and they know their stuff too. So those are the people that I want to be associated with. Those are the people I want, I want to be able to learn from and those are the people that I've been praying when I get an opportunity to work side by side on a basis with and continue to grow my edition of the game. Kind of going back to the beginning of your career, coming to the revolution. Mm-hmm. Even before that, I, I remember hearing a story about how you were cap tied to Grenada pretty pretty young, and that there was you know there was always some talk that you could have played for the U.S. national team if that hadn't happened. When when were you first cap tied with Grenada? I think it was like 2000. I think it was like I think college years. I didn't want to wait anymore. I was getting to a point where I was frustrated that I was being called in any. I thought I was a good player, Back when you were drafted in uh, 2002, you didn't join the revolution until 2003. At that time, were you exploring opportunities overseas? Yeah, I definitely was. I explored opportunities in Germany, went to Germany and Italy. I wanted to go over there and to be honest, the college was $24,000, and I didn't thought it was enough to have a level for that come to them. I wanted to make more money, come to school and understanding that this is a job, this is what I wanted to do, and I wanted to test my love skills, and I got Italy and Germany. Did you follow the revolution's success in 2002, and did that have any impact on you joining the team the following year in 2003? I did follow that. I did communicate with Steve. With Nicole, it did me thinking that they have a great organization, which they do. And I said, I understand that they're winning, they have winning for that, winning for this, and they're winning for the opportunity overseas didn't fall through with him, where Germany wasn't able to get a working visa over there. Then I decided to come back. Was it strange joining the team in 2003 and play for a different head coach than the one who drafted you the year before in 2002? It was strange in terms of I didn't really I didn't know none of that I didn't have a relationship with any of that one too. But it was strange being by someone else and coached by another but uh, it worked out perfect for me because when when I met Stevie and that day I thought it was uh, the most the best thing for me because Stevie was more of a players players coach and he understand my mentality and he made me into a great player. So I knew that, that worked out perfect for me and all my relationship now my relationship now with Stevie it, had, it all had to do from 2003 when we first met me as someone that had the opportunity to cover the team back then it seems like you were got to walk right into a, a team filled with a lot of you know great veterans guys like Steve Ralston Brian Kamler you know Carlos Chimosa Matt Reese Aiden Brown what was it that way for you as a as a young player on the inside who were some of the guys that kind of took you under the wing in those early years that being a laugh. Just thinking about it, though, as a person, just walking in as a rookie and really opened my eyes 
and so I was like they saw a photo of guys that eating guns and Anita, Joey Franchino, Kama, Carlos Mosa, who I'm forever thankful for what they have teaching me and for taking me under their wing. And some of your teammates have gone on to have success, you know, both overseas and in MLS. One guy that kind of stands out is Michael Parkhurst, who um, has had a lot of success with Atlanta. Um, have you been impressed with what you've seen from him in, in his later stages of career? And you're pressed, impressed with how long um, he was able to keep playing at such a high level? Michael, yeah. Yeah. I'm probably the, one of the best and smartest guys away from revolutionary history in terms of what he was, he, what, what he was able to accomplish. He went overseas and then he came back with Atlanta. But I'm not surprised at how great he's doing right now because he was just one of the smartest players on the field and off the field, obviously. But he understands the game and he knew how to reach situation. And today's players, you don't really see that a lot. But he had that way, way back to the first day and coming into practice. And he was just picking passes off and just getting up in the back. And, and everybody was like, wow, this kid is smart. This kid is brilliant. And, he allowed us to play the three-five-two system. He made CV to a genius too, because he sweep the ball, the ball in the back, and we were able to free up a lot of the players and have players like Taylor. And so he allowed us to kind of dictate the system that we wanted. But it was still a three-five-two back then, so he really helped comes up that. But I'm glad to see he's doing great things in Atlanta, and he got a championship. Going back to uh, kind of 2006-2007, Celtic made uh, a couple of offers for you in that time frame, both of which were rejected by the Revs and MLS. Uh, what was your interest in going overseas and joining Celtic? Uh, yeah, I didn't go through. I wanted to test my game. I wanted to see what it was like playing at a different level. It was like three, four years in MLS. I didn't pay I did get a contract extension for two years. I did, re- I did renegotiate a contract for two years from 50000 to like 150000 I needed money at that point. We can't live off of that money. So. Uh, but I wanted to go over there. I wanted to see what it was like. And Celtic coming over here and playing us in, in Foxborough, it gave me an opportunity to see what those players were like. And, and when we played them in Gillette, and I, like, and I thought it, and I thought I had one of the best games. And then and they saw the interest and were the approaching because of financial reasons. They made a and they made a bit, I guess, too low. And another guy who was getting offers around the same time was Taylor Twelman. Uh, it seems like a few people throughout MLS uh, were unhappy with how contracts were handled. Um, do you think the team and the league should have done more uh, for some of those uh, guys in MLS and on the revs that uh, got interest from teams overseas? Uh, yeah, looking back at it, I understand, uh, I understand how important he was. Um, he was, Taylor in particular, he was the league, he was a young American, he was just coming up and he was... In my opinion, probably the best goal squad MLS I've seen. So one of the best goal squad MLS I've seen. So I understand what MLS and the evolution was trying to the assets. And then the league was growing. The league was just starting up in terms of it. And doing the nothing in compensation. So he staying here, I think, was, it definitely helped the league grow. He staying here helped the league grow. Players like Kredemsi who had the opportunity to go over there and really test their talent and really test their potential. You can see the difference in terms of what they achieved. But back then, mounting the MLS wanted to lose some of their best assets and with the region being so successful, and was like on the past to just go and not being really fairly compensated at that point. Do you have any regrets about never getting the chance to play in Europe? Obviously, you had a very successful career in MLS, but as you say, was there is there any regrets of never being able to kind of test yourself overseas and, and giving a shot in Europe? Yeah, I think sometimes, some things in life I try not to regret, but there's the one or two things that still that stubborn me is the opportunity to play for the U.S. national team. I would have had that. And, and yeah, I'd have to test myself overseas or higher outside where it be overseas or where it be somewhere else, but I would have loved those two things most importantly, but I look at it as a learning experience. And fortunately for me, my life has, my life has been blessed. I got to, I got to play in MLS, and that's one of my dreams was to play professional soccer. And I got to live out one of my dreams. And the evolution has been great to me. It's still given me a lot of a lot of things that have made me into who I am today. 
um, confess I am grateful for this opportunity that I got to play in MLS and live up my dreams no matter what. You guys finally won a trophy with the U.S. Open Cup in 2007. Did that feel like a giant weight that was lifted off of your back from all of the uh, previous MLS Cup uh, disappointments? Yeah, I didn't even get to, to play that. the final two. So, uh, but it was great that we won a cup. Uh, I see it when I went into the new facility in Gillette Stadium. Uh, I see the trophy there, and I bring back memories of how hard it was to get to that game, and I wasn't able to play, but it's so good that we were able to win that Open Cup Finals, and to get a championship is hard, no matter what level, especially in the MLS, it's very difficult, it's a very difficult task to, to be a champion, and we were short a couple of times, we were short five times to be straight about it, but to win the MLS Cup and to understand the meaning behind it. It was a great achievement for myself and the team in general. We also got to ask about that um, U.S. Open Cup, about something that happened after that final. Um, the Athletic recently reported a story from that season where after your victory, a few members of the team stole a giant Easter bunny from a closet of the hotel you guys were staying at. <laughs> do you do you remember that story? Were you involved? Were you one of the thieves that took that giant bunny from the, that hotel? I was uh, we had some fun days, uh, pre-season, especially and after games and finals, uh, that final in particular. Uh, we had some fun times. Uh, when you win a championship, you don't really, you just celebrate. You don't know, plan it out. You don't know what you're going to do. So whatever whatever that night brings, whatever that day brings, we were just enjoying ourselves. We took the cup, to the, we took the cup out that night and celebrated with it, like the open cup and had beers in it and drinking out of it too. It was a wild night, but it was a fun night. It seems like there was a lot of you know fun characters on the team back then, and you know Matt Reese is someone that's known as kind of being a practical jokester. Um, was was he really the funniest guy on that team, or were there other guys that were funny? And were there any practical jokes or other stories that you remember being particularly memorable back then? No, Matt, I saw Matt Reese is definitely the funniest. He's number one and two, the funniest person. He's the funniest person I've been around, and he's just he's just a great teammate. First of all, but he makes everything, he puts everything into perspective in terms of what they have to do and what's important in life. And he always made things fun, no matter what we were going through, even losing or when we didn't perform well, he made everything fun. Uh, just in general, I think our preseason was probably the wildest of them. I think we go into Cancun, we got into some fights over there in Mexico, then we went to Costa Rica, we got into. <laughs> It's just outside. Uh, so we we were one of those teams that teams understand that players need players need to have a good preseason. So we went to some different places. When other teams back then were going to like Arizona and Florida for preseason, we were going to Mexico to play those teams. We were going to Cancun where we were we were in Costa Rica where we were getting in fights. We had fights back then between teammates. So it was it was very strange back then being not thinking about it. But it made us into a stronger unit and it prepared us for a lot of things that we were able to face throughout the regular season and the playoffs back then. I remember Joey and Clint fighting. I remember me and Aiden fighting, me and Joey fighting. Me and there was a couple of fights back then that nobody wanted a part of it. But at the end of the day and at the end of the week, when game time came around, everybody was just focused on winning games at the end of the day. Yeah, and it, and it seems like the the team in Steve Nich- Leitner, Steve Nichols' tenure, when some of those guys were gone, wasn't as successful. Obviously, do you think there was you know failure to replace some of those key guys late on in, in Steve's tenure? Yeah, I definitely think that's why that's why we took a dip. Foundation uh, revolution, it took a because we only identify key and key key players, and I think Steve Nichols and Paul Mariner. He doesn't get his credit, but he needs to get a lot of credit. Those guys had an eye for talent. They understand and they knew what kind of players they wanted to be a part of their team. Back then, they were able to draft and they were able to scout and bring in very talented players that bring in players that can be key addition or just bring something to the team. And I think with the revolution in the late years, not talking about now, but that haven't been that haven't been. That haven't been sorted. I think you need guys who can identify players and identify talents. So that's another year. Evolution took dip in form and was probably not the best organization to play for, but it had to deal with the scouting. It definitely need players that can see those things, but you need you need personnel that can see scouts, personnel that can see players and scout players to 
bring them to the organization. And there were some interesting teammates that you had in those later years. I remember uh, one time when Emmanuel Ose tried to take a free kick away from Steve Ralston, um, and another time where, where Reiko Lechnik, I think, took a penalty kick maybe from you. Do you remember those times? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, like I said, we also kind of had that team. Yeah, Ose. Ose was a wild one. You remember him greasing his body up. Like, every game, he would grease his body up from two to head, and he would be shining, no matter how hot the sun was, and he was a wild character on this game. Like, we would be taking free kicks on halfway and trying to shoot it. And everybody's like, what is wrong with this guy? And, but he was a good defender. He was, he was definitely a good defender in some of, the, some of the games we played. But he was one of the wildest characters, I think, that went through Revolution Doors. And guys took in penalty. Me and some guys got into some verbal altercation and some fights throughout my tenure with the Revolution. But to this day, I think those guys would say, what we did made us into good friends. Uh, what we made made us into good teammates at the end of the day. We all just wanted to win games. So it was a matter of us not getting along all the time, but we all wanted to win, and that was the biggest, the biggest thing, no matter what. Was it strange at all for you to have a, a former teammate as your coach in 2012 when Jay Heaps took over? Yeah, it was definitely. He caught me off guard. I was very surprised that they gave him the opportunity to, to lead us as men. I didn't think he was qualified for that. That was very in my opinion. But he came in and he did a job that he thought was a good job. And and if he he wanted something different, I wanted to do something. In my opinion, I thought I was doing what I thought was for me and the team. So we got off to a shaky start, and from that, it never it never got picked in. So at the end of the day. Young and he shipped me out of town to see us where I went uh, with, with Brendan Fraser, Brian Fraser over there. So that was a difficult he was thinking about it now that influence throughout the team and my influence on players was very strong. So he had to do something that he thought was right for his coaching career. But I learned from those things. I look I look at it as learning opportunities and he hurt a lot. That I was so fond of and still fond of. But I understand that at the end of the day, this is a business and you need to do what you needed to do. Yeah, I, I, actually, I actually remember a few weeks later when uh, Chivas came into Foxborough talking to Robin Frazier about the trade, and he he seemed to be absolutely shocked that the, the revolution would have traded you. Um, as shocked as just about anybody. Um, that must have been a, a huge surprise to, to you. And did you have any warning that, that was coming? No, I didn't. Any warning at all? Uh, I think when my agent called me, he called me in the morning, and I didn't really pick up. And then he called me in the afternoon again, and I, I didn't really pick up. And then when he called me back and tell me, "Yeah, he needs you to call me now." And I called him and he told me, "I'm like, nah, you have the wrong client." And he started laughing, and he repeated, "He was like, the revolution wants to trade you." And I'm like, "Yeah, I don't want to go anywhere." And then he said, "It's not. I'm not up your choice anymore. They're gonna send you out of town. So you have to. Right now, they own your rights. You have to do what's." you think is best, they're going to do what they think is best for their organization, so you have to go there. And when I got to L.A. and I met Fraser, he was such a great guy. He, he understand what was going on. He understand the business aspect of it because he played in the league for so many years, and I learned a lot from him being a player, and to this day, I'm grateful for the opportunity he gave me to come to L.A. But I was very shocked. I was surprised that they wanted to trade me after being here, after being in New England so long and after being able to, after doing so much for the franchise and doing so much for the club, I thought I was going to stay here and retire Revolution for life. But things work out, things work out, and things doesn't work out the way you want to all the time. So I just went along with it, and I got the opportunity to come back here. I wasn't able to play when I came back to my final year, but I got the experience of being around great players again and being around New England, and that's where I am now, and that's where I want to be. And you... you re-signed with the Revs in 2014, but unfortunately due to uh, various injuries, you never made it back on the field. Um, how disappointing was it that you never made that return to Foxborough? Very, very disappointing. I think my body, body didn't allow me to play the games when I was held, not when I wanted to play. I kept pushing myself more when I was fit. Uh, when I was fit, I'm ready to play. Uh, Jay didn't give me the opportunity when I was ready to go and sit on the bench and he got more and more frustrating, and at that point, I started to lose. I started to lose the love and the lust I had for the game, and the, the motivation I had for the game. So it was very disappointed, and 
start losing that feeling. You don't really want to be around what you've done. You don't really want to be around the game itself. You don't want to be around soccer. From that's what kind of got more and more frustrating. So at that point, I just thought it was best that I just continue to try to teach the younger kids and be a part of the organization and. Whatever the players needed, I was there to help, whether it was just to lend an air or to communicate or to push them during practice, which I got a lot of practice time that year. I was there for the majority of practices on the field. So I got the opportunity to play. I remember back at those days, I got to play with JJ, who I was a, far, I was a big fan of, of what he what he done for the U.S. national team and him coming in here. I got to practice with him. That was one of the highlights of that 2014 year for me. And getting to the MLS Cup and watching it again after we, even though we lost that game, I was one of the highlights for me getting the opportunity to see players and see the game from a different level. One person that you worked with a lot uh, was Zach Haravo, uh, and he even took your number with the team uh, when he signed with the Revolution. Were you surprised and disappointed that it didn't really his career never really took off with the Revolution? I was. I'm not surprised that he got the opportunity to to play for the first month of the play games with the first team on the J. Uh, just speaking to him and seeing a lot of things throughout practice. I'm, I'm blessed that he was able to even wear my number and to even make it into the MLS. By far, he's one of the best kids I've worked with. and He's the one that, as a coach, and I got the opportunity to coach him very young when he played with my club. And my, when he played for my club and when he played with his tongue. Uh, but I'm very, very proud of what he has done and what he has accomplished. And unfortunately, he didn't get the, the game time that he thought he deserved or he did or he did deserve playing for the revolution. But sometimes that's how soccer is, that's how sports is. You just have to continue to work hard, continue to push yourself, and continue to pray that something things going to go your way. And it just didn't click as much as he wanted with the revolution. But I think in San Antonio, it might work out for him. And you never know, he might, he might be back in the MLS in a year or two. But he's just got to continue to work hard and push himself more and more. What are your thoughts on the current Revolution team? I know you had some great things to say about Bruce Arena, but um, a lot of people are very optimistic about the uh, the 2020 team, the current roster. Uh, what are your thoughts about the Revolution? I love it. It's very good. I think with Bruce managerial skills, he'll, he'll lead us back to the glory line and he'll get us one of those championships that we've been craving for so many years. I think he has done a great job of bringing in talented and players with high, high IQ for the game. And he's brought in a lot of different things to the program. He's made, he's made the team more accountable. He's made players more accountable on the field. You can tell from watching him last year when he came in and seeing it this year and the relationship that he developed with his players off the field and on and off the field. It's, it's surreal. And it's one of the things that I never really understand until I've gotten close to him or just seen him work. He has a he has a keen sense of he has a keen sense of how to deal with players and him understanding how players' mentality are and how to get the best out of players. That's one of the things I think that made him the best coach in the best US coach or the best coach in US history, in my opinion. So I'm looking forward to his opportunity to get to work with him. But I think just being a player that's one of the things I would have loved to play with someone loves to be under his tutelage. I love to play for him, just understanding what he has done and who he is. I would have loved the opportunity to play for him as a coach. But I think now with the players that we have, I think we can win it all this year once we get back to the regular schedule programming for the MLS. I think obviously there's a lot going on, but I think he'll he'll do a great job of leading us to the promised land. And I did want to go back and ask you one more question about a story that uh, a story earlier in your career that emerged um, again during this quarantine. And that's the story about the the flight, I think, in 2008 that uh, the team was taken to L.A. in which a completely naked guy tried to open up the emergency door on the plane. Were you on that flight? And do you remember what happened? I was on the flight. I remember, as far as I remember, yeah, it was so, we were all just sitting there and we were wondering what was happening and. Before we know it, there was a guy just trying to open up the emergency exit, and we were like, what the hell is going on? We couldn't believe, like, this is actually happening. And that's as far as I remember. But there's a lot of stories that on and off the field, like you would never believe that I was a part of, and ones that I love being a part of. 
that made the revolution, that made those teams so fun, that made those teams so successful. Those things like that, just crazy things like that, that made us laugh and bond together and made the team successful and made our team into great teams. Are there any other good stories you want to share from that, from those times? <laughs> the, no. It's probably my Steve Nichols book. Steve Nichols. I'm trying to get a copy of it. He might have some other stories about the Cancun trips and the uh, trips where our preseason went longer than the games went longer than they proposed. Uh, our days, our days in Portugal with Craig Thornburg. All those guys. You probably catch a catch something <laughs> on Steve Nichols' book, and you'll see. It. I actually got Steve Nichols' book sitting right on my shelf here. I haven't gotten to it yet, though, but I'm looking forward to reading it. <laughs> Before yeah. I let you go, what, what would you say was the the big, the top highlight um, of your playing career? Being a professional. I think for me, it was just being a professional, living out my dreams, getting 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 the opportunity to play against some of the top and best players in the, in America. That was one of the things I cherished the most. I got to live out my dreams. I got to play against Real Madrid, Real Madrid in the Galactical days. I got to play against my new Celtic all-star games when I met some of my heroes who like Landon Donald, one of the kids that I look up to, even though I was older than him. He was one of the players that are special. Meeting players like that, playing all-star games, uh, getting the championships. Uh, I lived my dream. As a, as a young boy growing up in Grenada, I didn't thought I was going to get to do the things that made me get to do those things. And for me, I got to live up my dreams where I played professionally at a high level. I thought, in my opinion, I was one of the best players to ever place it up in MLS and definitely one of the best players in revolution history. Thanks so much, Char. We really appreciate your time. And it was an honor to have the such a Revs legend on our podcast. Appreciate it. And that was revolution midfielder Shari Joseph, who, as you heard, had been coaching Grenada um for you know the past two years but unfortunately he's no longer doing that but it sounds like he's going to be back with the revolution academy um when all of this is over so that's exciting that the revolution brought him back in i think it's always good to have a, a club legend um involved with the team and i think the revolution haven't done enough of that over the years so i don't know about you greg but I, I'm, I'm excited to see shara joseph back with the revolution yeah absolutely i mean it's exciting to have um a club legend back with the team in general and, uh, you know, for the listeners that don't know, he's always been involved in youth coaching. Uh, he's always been involved in the development of young players. And I kind of skimmed over this uh, in the interview, but he was very successful in his two year tenure as coach of Grenada. Um, I-, I mentioned he had a 10 game unbeaten streak uh, towards the end of his tenure in 2019. Um, they've qualified for the Gold Cup. So um, him him leaving that position certainly wasn't due to. Um, a lack of results or a lack of performance. So his his coaching career has gotten off to a very good start, and hopefully he can kind of continue that with the Revolution Academy uh, and in MLS. Yeah, and I do want to say too uh, with Strawberry Joseph, he's always been a, a you know a very helpful guy in my career um, when it was covering the Revolution um, because he's always been someone that you know even after a loss would answer your questions and you know give great responses, um, which you certainly can't say for every player. So you know just a thank you to him for coming on the podcast and I thank you for you know, all he's done over the years, including coming on Revolution Recap uh, 15 years ago when it was the the first year of the show um, back on AM Radio in Providence. So uh, it's it's exciting to reconnect with him and, and get him on the show. Um, but I think before we wrap things up, we did ask for listener questions this week and, and got some interesting ones. Uh, so, Greg, I'll, I'll let you take that away. Yes, uh, we've, we brought back listener questions. We didn't do it last week, so I figured we couldn't do multiple podcasts without bringing back listener questions. But uh, let's start with uh, Tom Quinlan asks us, should Jay Heaps get a second chance at coaching in MLS? Well, I think uh, Shari Joseph touched on, on Jay Heaps a bit there. And um, when he came into the revolution, a lot of people thinking, including him, that he wasn't qualified enough necessarily for the job. But, you know, overall, I thought he had a pretty good tenure as revolution head coach. You know, started off struggling a bit, um, but then 2013 really kind of turned things around and took a team that I didn't think was you know that good on paper um, to the MLS playoffs. Uh, and then the next year with Jermaine Jones added, took them to the MLS Cup final. Um, things obviously started to fall apart after that with Jermaine Jones being hurt and then leaving the team. Um, and I think he's finished with just slightly below 500. 
500 as a winning percentage with the Revolution. But, you know, for a first-time head coach and walking into what I thought was a a very difficult situation, um, I thought he grew a lot on the job. And I think that he is somebody that, you know, maybe he goes back to assistant coaching first, um, but certainly someone that I, I would be more open to seeing get another MLS head coaching job. Uh, in the future, especially if he you know has some success as an assistant coach first, um, but I, I don't think his tenure with the Revolution was so bad that he doesn't deserve another chance. He did lead a Revolution team that you know at the time was not spending as much on the roster as, as most other teams to an MLS Cup final. Uh, so I, I certainly give him some credit for that, um, and you know I think he's a guy that you know certainly a lot more so than than Brad Friedel deserves another shot. I will say, though, I, I agree with everything you say, but I, I'm curious if he is interested in doing that because he seems very content being the president of Birmingham Legion and kind of moving into more of an executive role. Um, certainly after his tenure with the Revolution, I thought he could have gone to, at the very least, a USL side and, and head coach there. But said he's kind of moved up to a general manager president role uh, and has kind of started some good things down in Birmingham. Um, I, I wonder if he's kind of looking for more of a front office position in the future. But in terms of ability... Uh, uh, I, I do think that Jay Heaps should get another shot somewhere down the line. He, he took a team to MLS Cup, so I, I, I don't see why he wouldn't get that second chance. Yeah, no, I, I agree. If you if he wants it, I think he you know deserves it. And again, I, you know, going from you know the tough end of his career with the Revolution as a head coach, it may require him to you know, like you said, be a USL coach first or be an assistant coach first. But uh, I certainly don't think. Yeah, the way he coached the revolution that he has foreclosed on, you know, coaching another MLS team in the future. We got another question from uh, Rebs Revolt, uh, which is our friend Chris Velukas, who is a listener. He he certainly uh, does a lot of questions to us. He's starting a new uh, video blog, I guess that's the right term, but he's doing uh, new videos on YouTube. So please go subscribe to his YouTube channel. But uh, Rebs Revolt, that's the name of his channel, says MLS and football in general see a lot of players turn into professional coaches of the current Rev squad. Who do you think has the best chance to become an MLS head coach? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always the the answer that the obvious answer that comes up a lot, and which is Scott Caldwell um, as kind of the guy that people think of, um, you know, based on the type of person he is, that he could be a head coach for the revolution uh, in the future. You know, it's it, the people always talked about Chris Tierney. Obviously, he's in a front office position now. Maybe he'll get a coach. Not it's a you know, kind of a cop out to say him since he's not, um, you know, not a player anymore. But just looking at the at the Revolution team, Scott Caldwell's got someone that stands out. Um, you know, Antonio De La Mea seems like a guy that maybe could be a head coach in the future. Andrew Farrell's been around the Revolution so long and, and developed so much as a player, um, and you know, seems to be more of a leader now than he was in the past. You know, maybe he's a guy. Um, but, you know, at, at this point, you kind of look towards the veterans and less towards the young guys as potential future coaches. And um, if I had to pick one, I would I would go with Scott Caldwell. Yeah, I, I was going to say Andrew Farrell, because I think he's been, you know, he's a very solid veteran presence. And he seems to his leadership abilities seem to get better and better and stronger and stronger every year. I'm sure at some point he'll be the captain of the revolution. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a tough question, because as you say, in the past, I would have gone with a Chris Tierney. I mean, guys like Shaw Ree, I, I think certainly you knew were going to get into coaching, but um, I'm not not totally sure if anyone is super involved with youth, co- youth coaching right now or has kind of expressed an interest in, in going into coaching. So I'm not I'm not totally certain on that one. But yeah, the names that come to mind are Andrew Farrell, Scott Caldwell. The other guy I was thinking about potentially is Brad Knighton, who has been a veteran uh, backup keeper for so long. He seems to have a really positive impact on the young keepers wherever he's gone and he's bounced around through MLS. So um, those are kind of the names that I would look at personally. But yeah, and, and in the past, I know there were a lot of guys that have like volunteered as assistant coaches in college. In college, I know Jay. Heaps, I think, volunteered at Northeastern. Um, I think Charlie Davies volunteered at BC for a while. Um, you know, there were several other guys that did that as well. And I actually even remember, you know, going further back, um, you know, when I was in high school, I remember um, in, in my high school's conference that a lot of the JV high school teams were coached by Revolution players, guys like Rusty Pierce and Joe Franchino uh, back then. And I, you know, I, I haven't heard too many stories about current Revolution players doing that. I'm sure there are some that are doing that, but you know, those are probably some of the guys to look to. That are the guys that are taking the opportunity to kind of get coaching experience now are probably the guys to kind of have on that list as potential future coaches. Mike Kennedy asks us, who is the best Revs player at FIFA? We probably should be a little bit more prepped on this because there have been a lot of uh, FIFA streams over the past few weeks while we're all stuck in quarantine. My guess is Diego Fagundes, since he is he represented the Revs in that FIFA tournament. Am I correct with that? It seems like any time you hear about you know Revolution participating in video game tournaments or you know doing something with you know with the the Revolution official FIFA player um, that Diego Fagundes is, is involved. So it seems like he's the obvious choice. But it wouldn't surprise me if there was somebody else sneaky out there that that uh, you don't hear about as much that's actually really good maybe a, you know 
know, Henry Kessler. Or I always kind of assume the, the younger guys on the team are probably more into video games, maybe Dewan Jones. Um, but yeah, you, you have to go with Diego Fagundes until you hear otherwise, right? Yeah, that that that's my default option. It's a bit of a cop out, but um, you know, we we've been seeing all these tournaments between representatives from teams around the league. Really, what I think they should do, and this question kind of gets to, it, is we really need a Revs FIFA tournament because I think uh, from a Revolutions fan perspective, it would be a lot more interesting to see, you know, kind of the bragging rights and the interactions between teammates. Um, I think when you're fighting against team or playing against teams or players from other teams, they might be a little too polite. Uh, I think we want to see some actual FIFA trash talk. That's my that's my two cents. Honestly, what I love to see is a Boston sports athletes FIFA tournament because I know there's plenty of guys on other Boston sports teams that also play FIFA. Imagine Gordon Hayward playing against Diego Fagundes. That'd be fun to see, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, and, and Cantor from the Celtics also plays FIFA, if I remember correctly. So Yeah, he's a big uh, soccer fan. And Jalen Brown, I know, is a big soccer fan, so a good chance he plays FIFA as well. <laughs> I'm sure Keith Folk also plays FIFA now that he's a big <laughs> soccer fan too and he's been coming around. Um, Seth from the Bent Musket asks us, uh, the Revs Mount Rushmore is easy. Name the four worst players in team history. Uh, and this tweet got a lot of responses. Uh, I'm not going to list all of the names that people were replying to. And also, this question's a little mean, but uh, we've never shied away from a question, Sean. So um, uh, go ahead. Who, who's on your Mount Flushmore? No, so I, I like this question. The the problem is there's two ways you could take it, and um, one of which would be to kind of go for the guys that you know you know were bad players. Um, the, <laughs> the athletic article we talked about where what was it Michael Augustine who wasn't supposed to be um, you know the the wrong player that came to the Revolution. Uh, it would be easy to put a guy like that on there, and then uh, Tony Frias who uh, was on the Revolution for several years and, and never saw a minute and. Uh, you know, there's you know, some stories about maybe why he was on the team. You know, adding guys like that is just too easy. But I think you kind of got to look at guys that had some level of expectation um, when they came to the revolution um, instead of just looking at some of the younger guys that just didn't ever play. Um, and it's easy to look, you know, just a couple years ago or just last year or two, um, or two years ago, rather, to the guys that Brad Friedel brought in. Um, you can easily, you know, throw in a Christian Machado or a Guillermo Hache um, as, you know, extremely disappointing players, um, you know, Gabriel Somi, who I think was the you know the second highest paid left back in the league at one point, uh, and clearly wasn't good enough for MLS. Uh, you know, those are some easy names to throw out there. Uh, one of the suggestions that I saw, um, I think, was from Real Me MP, was um, Steve Howie, which I thought was a, a great answer. He was kind of a, a veteran center back that Steve Nichol brought in during his tenure and was just you know terrible. Uh, for the revolution. I think Seth mentioned John Lozano, another center back. And, you know, it, it is funny. There is a whole host of center backs that I think came to the revolution with, you know, some, some good fanfare um, as kind of being the solution to the revs at, at that position where the revs have often struggled to find good guys since, you know, Michael Parkhurst left and since, you know, AJ Soares and, and Jose Gonzalez left. Um, but, you know, a whole host of those guys you could put on there, including, you know, even a guy like Gabriel Badia, who had a little bit more success, but wasn't, you know, very good for the revolution back line. Um, and then I think to a guy like uh, Jose Pepe Moreno, who was supposed to be the revolution's answer as the, you know, the new number nine up top. And I think he scored, you know, made seven appearances and scored one goal and the revolution had to drag him uh, to come to Fox. They signed him and then it turned out he didn't want to come. Um, and, you know, they enforced his contract and got him to come. So, I, you know, you might say he scored one goal, which is better than some refs have done. But I think given the expectations, I, I might put him on that list. Um, you know, I like the Steve Howie pick. I like I think Gabriel Somi again, you know, factoring in the salary that he got and the expectations there. Um, narrowing it down to, to just four is difficult, but I think those are kind of the, the way I would lean on that list is more the, the veteran guys that came into the team that had expectations um, and, you know, got decent salaries and just didn't perform. And, you know, some of them didn't necessarily look like they wanted to be here. Yeah, there, there's a lot of different ways you can take this one because you could if you're looking for the bottom four worst players to ever be on the team, you're probably going to pick four backups that never really got to see the field. You mentioned Michael Augustine, who I think made one appearance. And as you say, it was an accidental signing. They were shocked at, you know, they, they went to sign a different player. A different player flew over um, from Nigeria and they ended up signing him uh, just because I guess they had hyped him up or I'm, I'm not still not sure why they didn't send him back. But um, yeah, from my standpoint, I'm kind of going on the four players that I think were most disappointing from a, were expected to make an impact and didn't. Um, the other thing too, is I'll, I'll preface this by saying that I've got a lot of MLS 2.0 players since my fandom does not stretch all the way back to the beginning of the revolution's history like yours, Sean. So um, I, I've narrowed it down to four. Uh, I have Gabriel Somi, who you said came in as the second highest left back. Uh, and he went from a TAM signing in the preseason to completely out of the 18 for a year and a half uh, 
with a year and a half left on his contract by May or June. Um, or have uh, Jerry Bankson, who uh, was, you know, CONCACAF legend, but really did not translate over into MLS. Um, I have Christian Machado and, and Gabriel Hache um, as, or sorry, Guillermo Hache uh, kind of as a pair because they were brought in essentially at the same time. And we were told Hache is a goal scorer and Christian Machado can play four different positions. And I, I think they were just doomed to fail from the start because of how just uh, Brad Friel really, really just kind of built them up. And they, they really weren't anything other than fringe depth players um, that, that really didn't seem to be up to the level of MLS quality. Uh, and then I also threw on Benny Failhalver, who was supposed to be kind of this, you know, coming off of the U.S. men's national team, was supposed to be this great player to kind of captain that midfield and, and kind of bring a veteran leadership presence. And he was really a bust in, in New England. He, he did have a good career in MLS and went elsewhere, but um, I, I think a lot of people in New England remember his tenure as not being very good. So uh, those are my four or five uh, as going up on my Mount Flushmore. I, I like all those picks and, you know, even thinking more while you're, while you're talking about them. Um, I think you can even go back, I think, you know, a good year to kind of look at it for some of these names too, um, based on how you're defining it, is you go back and look at the 2002 Revolution roster, um, and people forget that that team started off really poorly that year. Um, there were hugely high expectations for that Revolution team. You know, they traded they um, because of expansion, or not sorry, not because of expansion, because of the two teams that folded. Um, the Revolution were able to bring in a lot of key players. You know, they brought in Alex Payne Chacon, who was I believe the reigning league MVP. They brought in Mamadou Diallo, who was the top scorer in the league two years ago. Um, so you know, everyone talks about Steve Ross and Taylor Twelman. Um, you know, those guys that came in and really helped the team. Uh, but there were a number of other guys that had hugely high expectations that, uh, were big disappointments. And, you know, Mamadou Diallo, uh, one of the top scorers in MLS for years came into the revolution, um, and made seven appearances, scored one goal, and then was traded because he just didn't perform. You know, Alex Pena Chacon, the reigning MVP, scored two goals in 20 appearances, um, and was a huge disappointment. And both of those guys who were expected to lead the revolution front line, um, you know, were, were really, uh, lost their positions to Taylor Twelman, and even you know Woldy Harris was scored more goals than them that season. So um, I think you can look at those two guys as you know two guys with huge expectations that were coming off you know fantastic seasons in MLS that you expected to you know kind of drive the Revolution to the you know championship game that they eventually got to uh, by not using them, um, and you know those guys could be big disappointments. And then you know. You know, some other names that come to mind while you were talking too um, is one guy that was kind of an, un, an unheralded signing, but uh, Ricardo Phillips that, you know, joined the revolution when the revolution were a, a very good team and uh, could have, you know, to me, it looked like he could have been that winger to kind of bring the revolution over the top. He was kind of like a Jerry Benson and that he was, you know, had a lot of success in CONCACAF. He'd just come off a very good gold cup for Panama. Um, and, you know, he was one of those guys that when you looked at those revolution teams that always seemed kind of one player away from winning that championship that were so good in 2005, 2006, and 2007, uh, he seemed like that finally that international signing to, that to me looked like could help bring the revolution over the top. Um, and he just completely kind of was a bust for the revolution. So he's another guy that not many people talk about, but I've always thought of as, as somebody at the time that was going to be a huge player for the revolution and kind of bring an already really good team over the top by adding them kind of some depth on the wings. Uh, and he just failed, but you know, there are, there are a whole number of players over the revolution who, you know, have had some really good seasons and some really disappointing seasons that I think can make this list. Yeah. And, and a lot too goes into, you know, how much time they played. Someone mentioned uh, Jeffrey Castillon who played 14 minutes, but was expected to make this great impact on the revs um, or at least, a unimpact on the on the revs and really he just played five more minutes than tony taylor so um you know there's a lot of different ways you can go this and it depends on how you define it but did you give us a, a final four sean or are you just kind of punting this in I, i'm kind of punting on this one i uh, i you know ask me again in a couple of weeks and maybe i'll give you a better answer uh i also i also remember the the first season of the revolution where everyone got allocated every team got allocated like one key player um I'm I'm blanking on who the Revolution got allocated that year, which is bad. But they were allocated one. Every team was allocated one key player, and the Revolution's key player performed so poorly that when Joe Max Moore came back, I think the league kind of felt bad for them and gave them Joe Max Moore. So, um, if if my memory would serve me right, I think that would be another guy that could you know potentially qualify for the list. Some interesting names. I'm just gonna kind of read through it, uh, but a lot of names throughout uh, Brett Snyder, Ryan guy. Uh, we got to vote for Femi, which again, I, I don't really want to pile on Femi since he was a third round draft pick. Uh, and I, I feel like he kind of overperformed um, what yeah, I, I wouldn't include him. <laughs> so, but, but I, I guess you can look at it from a talent perspective. I mean, I, I think maybe expectations were raised and never kind of really came back. So I, I don't know. I kind of see it. Um, Claude Yelda, 
is a uh, good selection. A lot of people, a lot of people put Edgar Castillo, which I just, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm the last Edgar Castillo stand in New England. He had five assists, guys. I don't know. Great, great on offense, terrible on defense. Um, but uh, Tony Frias, who you mentioned, Gabriel Somi, uh, Didier Domi. Um, yeah, so those are – oh, and we did get a vote for um, Dimitri Ambongo, the human yellow card, uh, and Christian Nemeth uh, also gets a shout, uh, which is also if – we're, if we're going off of expected impact and salary and we're, we're taking into consideration all those things, Christian Nemeth was – you know, when his return to – when he came back to MLS, he was expected to, you know – really help out a struggling offense. And he, he had, I think, one goal with the Revolution. So um, that that is also another player that I think deserves a, a little bit of consideration for this question. Oh, and, and, and now I've remembered who the player was. I'm going to botch his name miserably. But in 96, the Revolution were allocated Giuseppe Galderisi, who ended up only playing 11 games for the Revolution. He was a striker. And I think his only record for the Revs is that he has still holds the record for the most fouls committed by a Revolution player in one half with five, which is pretty impressive for a striker. But he was a guy that had played for Juventus, AC Milan, uh, Padova, um, and you know only ended up playing 11 games for the Revolution, but he was supposed to be one of their, their marquee guys in, in season one. So I think he gets uh, at least a nomination for me for the Mount Fleshmore for the Revolution. Yeah, shocking Mbongo and uh, Claudiana did not break that five foul and a half record, but you know, some that's a that's the Joe DiMaggio of Mount Flushmore records for the refs. But to recap, I have Somi Fielhaber, Machado Hauche as one person, and then Jerry Benson. And uh, you are too much of a coward to answer the question, so we will move on to the next question. We we do have another question about Gabriel Somi, and actually, it's an interesting one. Could Somi have been better under Bruce Arena since we now know how poor a Friedel how poor Friedel was as a coach? And we are recording this on Saturday. It is March 9th, so Sean. Happy one-year anniversary of the Brad Friedel firing. Just wanted to say that along. But uh, in terms of Gabriel Somi, do you think he would have gotten a better shake under Bruce Arena? Um, I mean, Gabriel Somi had a chance with Mike Lapper and then had a chance with Bruce Arena, and Bruce Arena pushed him out of the team. Um, so you can say he was already in a terrible position, which he was. But um, you know what we saw from him and his minutes with Brad Friedel, yes, Brad Friedel's system was you know pretty much designed to make defenders look bad. Um, but there was nothing that I saw from Gabriel Somi that told me you know if he was playing under a better coach, he would get more minutes. And again, you know, Brad, I mean, Bruce Arena had an opportunity to see him in practice and perhaps you know give him a chance to play, and he didn't. Um, and you know, I think th- he still doesn't have a team, right, at this point, which can I. Kind of- I- I'm actually looking up right now. He does not have a team. <laughs> yeah, which I don't think speaks to um, him being a particularly good player. You would have thought he would have you know, gone on trial somewhere at least and, and gotten an opportunity to sign somewhere. So I'm going to stick with he's just not good. Yeah, he's a very big mystery because if you look at the – if you just look at his resume, you would think that eventually he would go back to Sweden or Norway or, or you know somewhere in the Nordics and kind of return back to the level he was playing at. Um, and you know, FC Cincinnati – tried trading for him after the 2018 season, which the Revs turned down. I still don't understand that one at all. That's kind of a lost story um, that, that they could have gotten shed Gabriel Somi's salary and decided against it uh, and decided to keep him buried on the bench. Uh, and, and Somi also said that he had interest in Sweden in that offseason, uh, but you know he, he hasn't signed anywhere since then. Um, this is a guy that was getting appearances with Syria, which you know again they're not Brazil or Germany, but you know he's still playing international soccer and he was getting appearances while he was with the Revolution and while he was buried. So um, yeah, I don't think he is signed with anyone. Uh, transfer market. It looks like he. It says he signed with a team in Sweden, Athletic. Is school Tuna? I, I can't tell. But it's the second league. It's the second tier in Sweden. Um, so, which I, I don't, you know, that's that's not really MLS level. So, um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a mystery to how in those two years he went from a TAM signing and the second highest left back, pay, paid left back in the league to really a player that is, with you know, playing second division soccer. It's a, it's a really large fall from grace. And granted, he was never at the MLS you know, from what we saw, he he didn't look great, but he still was an athletic person. He still seemed like a positive impact in the dressing room from what we've heard about uh, him from from other players. So um, it's, a, it's a really big mystery. Maybe there's an alternative world where he comes to the Revs under Bruce Arena and he gets a few chances and makes a great impact. But I think the biggest counter argument against that is that Bruce Arena saw him practice and in a few weeks he left and uh, it, it took him until February to find a new team. Yeah, I, th- I think if Bruce Arena had seen anything there, it would have you know been easier for them to keep him on the roster and give him a shot. Um, so the fact that he was gone so quickly into Bruce Arena's tenure, uh, you know, doesn't give me much hope that you know if he had started under Bruce Arena, things would have been any different. 
Yeah, I can't see. I, I don't know if he's played any games recently. Obviously, there is the issue with the uh, coronavirus, but it doesn't look like he's played since the Revolution released him. Um, oh no, it says here on transfer market he's without a club. So I get. I, I, it's un. I cannot tell at this moment in time if he has a new club. But regardless, um, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of interest, which is pretty shocking. Yeah, I mean, you know, left backs are not the most common player to find in soccer as uh, anyone that's watched the revolution over the years would would know uh so you would think if there was talent there if there was enough talent there that you know again as a free agent you wouldn't think it would be that hard for him to get a trial somewhere and you know assuming he showed something uh get signed so uh, yeah it is kind of shocking to me that he hasn't found another team but it all just adds to you know maybe he's just not that good yeah too bad Mount Flush, obvious Mount Flushmore selection for me. Sorry. Yeah. I, no, I, I, he's I'm a with great you. Guy, but I mean, just, man, it, the, what a disappointment that signing was. Yeah. I mean, and it came at a time when the revolution needed a left back so badly. I think we, you know, we've talked about it plenty and about how, how much the revolution needed a left back at that time uh, with Tierney um, retiring. So, you know, it, it's, there were a lot of expectations there. I had high expectations for him. I think we talked a lot about it. I thought it was a good signing for the revolution at the time. Um, but quite quickly, you know, when you saw him on the field, when you saw how many times he turned the ball over passing, when you saw his you know, one-on-one defending ability, uh, it just became clear quickly that he was not the answer. Um, but yeah, no, I think he, he makes mine too because the expectations were, were pretty high, I thought, for him. Especially, again, given the fact that at the time, I think he was the second highest paid left back in MLS. So <laughs> I think we'll, we'll both agree on that one. So um, before we wrap things up, do you want to tell everyone where they should follow us on Twitter and Facebook? And <laughs> Yeah, you can follow us at Revolution Recap on Twitter and also like our Revolution Recap Facebook page. Uh, and Sean, where can people follow you on Twitter? You can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. And you know, we'll hopefully be doing more of these podcasts, maybe get another player or another current former, uh, who knows, player on the, on the podcast. It's always great to talk to current and former Revolution players. Um, thanks again for, to everyone for listening to us today. And thanks again to Shari Joseph for joining us. Um, we don't know when we'll be back, but we'll keep you posted on Twitter when we have another episode.